the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. This is Wednesday, January 20th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be putting the new register for lobbyists of public officials under the spotlight. Our very own Mark Paul will take us through some of the more interesting submissions by lobbyists that have been received to date. And later in the show, we'll be looking at the reasons behind the spectacular growth in passenger numbers at Dublin Airport last year when a record 25 million people passed through its doors. Now, we'll start, first of all, with this new register for lobbyists. Looking at this for the Irish Times this week has been Mark Paul, our business affairs uh, correspondent. Mark, just give us the background to this register. Um, When was it put in place and why? Um, Well, the register was put in place so that there was a public record of all contacts with public officials, politicians, um, civil servants and so on by businesses and individuals who who, who want those politicians and and civil servants to do something for them. Um, And we've never had something like this before. Never had something like this before. Um, um, You know, whether you want lands owned, whether you want to change to a law. I suppose it's to to try and get away from backroom shady deals or the perception of of, of such between business and and politics. So um, last year the government brought in new laws um, um, covering lobbying. Now, those laws covered issues such as, um, you know, ex-politicians, how long they have to be sort of in a cooling-off period before they're allowed to lobby their old colleagues. And But it also allowed for the creation of uh, effectively a lobbying regulator, a lady called Sherry Perot, who who, uh, who came to Ireland from Canada. Um, it's cited within the Standards and Public Office Commission, and they've set up this register. Um, so there's a deadline for this Thursday. It's the, it's the first deadline for that companies must register their lobbying activities. Um, um, for the last quarter. This is the 21st January, Thursday, January 21st. Yeah, yeah okay. th- th- Thursday coming. So every every relevant organisation, company or individual that has done any public lobbying between September and December of, of the year just gone um, has to register all of that. What's defined as lobbying? As lobbying, it could, it could be just, uh, say, an, say if you're looking for zoning, it could be an email to all the county councillors, it could be a meeting, it could be a phone call. Um, it has to be outside of the normal course of business um, and it, it, it has to be something initiated by uh, uh, by the lobbyist. Um, so if you're a professional lobbyist, for example, everything you do on behalf of all your clients, every meeting you have with every TD, every minis- meeting you request with a minister, um, every letter you send in, anything like that has to be registered. Um, so it's, it's all there for public consumption so you can see who is meeting whom and about what. Yeah. Now, I took a look at it briefly myself earlier this week, and it reminds me almost of the Saturday football scores as they're coming in on the teletext. It's just, it's constantly being updated. Tell, well, tell us about that. Well, 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 that's really a factor of the of the of the deadline of this Thursday. This is the first time anybody has had anything like this in Ireland before. This sort of a public register of lobbyists. So nobody really knows really how it's going to work. So for the first year there are no fines for non-compliance so while I was talking to the lobbying regulator um, um, to Ms Perot and she said that you know what they're really trying to do is just get people used to working the system. So this week um, um, in a, you know, as, as Irish people tend to do, leave things at the last minute, everybody has been um, um, firing in all the returns this week and as you said it's like, a, it's like the teletext. So, but we see IBEC for example on, uh, on Tuesday um, um, IBEC was, uh, was, was the big filer on Tuesday. It's the biggest lobbying group in the country um, by about at four o'clock on on uh, on Tuesday, it had uh, or on Wednesday, sorry, it had filed uh, about fifty two returns. Um, and making it far and away the biggest lobbyist in the country. Uh, the, the closest to it was the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which sometime last week filed about thirty two returns. Um, and, and how much information are we getting about these 
It, it, see, lobbying activities. Well, well, this is all part of the learning process. There's statutory information they have to give. They have to say who the lobbying is on behalf of. So if you're a PR company, you've got to say who your client is. And you've got to say who did the lobbying, whether it's the, a PR representative, whether it's the chief executive. You've got to say who the lobbying was aimed at. You've got to say, you've got to give a synopsis of, um, of, of what your aims were, what it was you were trying to achieve. Um, and you've got to you've got to outline whether it was a letter, whether it was a meeting, whether it was an email, how many times that happened. You don't have to give the date, just just the period in that three months. But I suppose where the where the flexibility comes in, and and, and one of the interesting things this week is 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 the difference between various organisations and and how they describe what it was they were trying to achieve. Some of them give loads of detail, um, 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 but some of the more I would say astute lobbyists give uh, a very scant detail. They just say um, to up you know for an example might be you know to, to update the minister on. on on the, uh, the, the the company that I run, or or, or, to, or to update the minister on the activities of my client. So I would imagine yeah, some of the banks, for example, have been saying to update the minister on uh, mortgage interest rates. Yes, yes, but they don't go into the finer detail of, of what it's about. But then again, I mean Tesco, for example, um, um, just filed a return where where, where they um, um, they were quite clear on what they wanted was to know exactly when the grocery regulations were going to be published, um, and they also wanted to talk to the minister about uh, or, or to the Department of Jobs, sorry, about their use of, for example, food. Cloud, which is a charity. So, so some where they where they don't mind the information being made public. I guess they'll put in more detail uh, in, in in terms of describing the the, the exact nature of the of the contacts yeah. with the public officials. Now, there are some who are not happy with the way it's being operated. For example, the PR industry, I understand, are whinging that other professions, uh, maybe lawyers and accountants, uh, might try to claim client privilege, so as not to have to release uh, details of their lobbying activities, whereas PR firms have to. That's a, the, the, the Public Relations Institute of Ireland. I mean, has been quite vociferous in, in, in pushing training programs and so on for, for, for its members. And its point is basically, look, if if professional lobbyists and PR people have to give all this detail about clients and so on, so should everybody else. I mean, if you're a company, for example, and you want to lobby uh, a councillor or, 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 or a TD about something and you don't want to be named in it, you don't want to appear in public, maybe you could go through your... Your, your, your law firm and ask them to make some sort of a representation and perhaps the law firm might try and claim client privilege then when it comes to naming the client. This is something that, uh, this is a concern that the, 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 the public relations uh, industry has raised and they've said that the use of client privilege, if this happens, um, um, will be, uh, is, is, you know, they, they described it as a red herring. Um, I spoke to Sherry Perot about it. Um, she said that, you know, once the first deadline passes and all the dust settles, they'll do a sector by sector analysis. Um, I took that as code for meaning they would look specifically at the legal profession, specifically at the accounting profession uh, and other professions, and just see how compliant they are. And, and, and see if there's any merit to these complaints. Now, the devil will be in the detail, and there's been some uh, very interesting uh, uh, Submissions uh, to the register. Uh, tell us about Pascal Taggart and beach volleyball. So, Pascal Taggart, who is the the, the, the former chairman of uh, of the Greyhound board, board Nagon, uh, and he's the current chairman of Dalelex, the Desmond Bank Company. But look, he's he's a well known business figure. But I mean, uh, according to one submission, Pascal Taggart facilitated a meeting with Jimmy Deanahan, uh, Minister of State, uh, and the Beach Volleyball Association of Ireland uh, about the location of uh, of more inland beach volleyball courts and, and and how to develop the sport and get funding and so on. So it just goes to show the level of detail and personalities that can pop up in these sort of things. Other, other who knew he was such a fan of beach volleyball? Who, 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 who knew indeed? And maybe we'll all be fans of it in future. Um, um, but there, there, there are other examples then. I mean, the tobacco industry, as you would expect, with plain packaging regulations coming in, they've been, they've been uh, very, very prominent on the register. John Player 
Um, for example, is one company, an example of a company that puts a lot of detail into its uh, uh, submissions uh, for the public register because I guess it guesses the public will want to read them and it sees that in effect a bit of lobbying from itself. So you can see the very strong language they use in their submission about um, um, smuggling, about uh, fake excise stamps, uh, about plain packaging and about how it's a nightmare and they're operating, yeah. operating in an information vacuum and so on. So yeah. they're using it as a bit of a what tool. What about the RFU, uh, this, the Irish Rugby Football Union and the alcohol bill? That's right. Well, the alcohol bill, of course, uh, uh, you know, which contains some restrictions and, 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 and new rules. He's proposed new restrictions and rules around the advertising and sponsorship of alcohol. And, you know, there is a, a fear among some sporting organisations that it may lessen the value of their their sponsorship assets and the IRFU went in to talk um, or has requested should we say and there's no evidence yet that they actually got a meeting have requested meetings with uh, with Pascal Donoghue and with Leo Vragger the Minister for Health um, 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 and want you know to, uh, to to further their uh, their concerns over the alcohol bill And there's been some submissions in relation to Charlie Hoy's old pad in Kilsidi? Yeah they have, well Kilsidi it seems Kilsidi falls into there's been a lot of submissions around zoning and, and just, just to make it clear Anybody who engages in any sort of lobbying with regard to land zoning, whether they're an individual or anybody, has to register. Um, um, and there's been lots of lobbying uh, in relation to, 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 to land and concealy for some reason. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very, uh, you know, there, there, there's, there's been planning permissions given for how he's old, uh, old pad and so on. But in lands around that, there's been a lot of lobbying for, uh, for rezoning there. Um, sure. What about, what about uh, Screen Producers Ireland on Henrietta Street? Yeah, that, I thought that was a curious one. Screen Producers Ireland, which obviously represents film producers, has, uh, has been lobbying Dublin City Council to try and get this moratorium lifted on filming in Henrietta Street. Henrietta Street is, if you want George in Dublin in your in your film, uh, period, in a period drama or whatever, you go to Henrietta Street and the residents are going berserk because every time they walk out their front doors, they're tripping over TV, they're tripping over cameras. It's in Rebellion, for example, at the moment, an RTE, and it's in uh, Penny Dreadful and, and and a couple of other things. So uh, Dublin City Council put a moratorium on uh, filming in Henry Street and Screen Producers Ireland hit the roof. Um, now, it, again, an interesting aspect of that is Screen Producers Ireland, which is an industry group um, says in its submission it's not representing an individual client um, that is representing the, in- the industry as a whole but you kind of wonder in situations like that or with IBEC for example if an individual company goes to its umbrella group and says look will you lobby for this on my behalf will they eventually get end up being named in the submission can we be sure of that and um, that's possibly one of the one of the loopholes in the laws do these umbrella groups um, like IBEC and so on do they really have to name um, um, do they have clients so to speak when they go lobbying and that's something I think that'll be shaken out as time goes on Right, any other interesting ones? Yeah, we have um, um, look again more lobbying in relation to uh, to zoning. The likes of Sean Mulryan, for example, um, is doing a lot, a lot of lobbying down around Leakslip, looking to get land uh, uh, rezoned down there. Um, um, there's been a lot of lobbying on the on the uh, on the alcohol bill, um, and uh, uh, the drinks industry again has been prominent. We've spoken about it already. And then um, on the converse side, a lot of lobbying is done by charities, it seems, and on anti-alcohol charities um, um, and uh, and anti. Refugees issues surrounding refugees. I saw refugees that. issues and and trade sisters unions of mercy. And, and, and trade unions and the sisters of mercy yeah, indeed. And, submissions. Yeah, I, and in, in relation to refugees and in, in, in relation to climate change. So you can kind of see what issues are important to what groups. And again, look, the thing is only finding its feet, and it'll probably take a couple of these quarterly returns before we figure out whether or not it's working properly, and before um, the users of the service, the lobbyists, before they mm-hmm. figure out how, how many to people have registered today. Um, there is. As of me coming into the studio here, there was about 950 had registered. Now, that would be short, um, they think, of, of, of the amount of groups that should be registered. And there was about 
about 1,200 separate returns okay. had been made. So the deadline is January 21st. If somebody doesn't meet that deadline, what happens? What sanctions are available? Um, well, no sanctions at all for the first year because they're just trying to get them to use the service. Um, after that, uh, it'll be fines um, 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 fines for, for, for non-use. But uh, Sherry, per- Sherry Perot said that once the deadline closes on Thursday, they're going to do an analysis to see who should have registered, who didn't register, who, who registered and didn't make a return and who hasn't been compliant. And then they'll start contacting people individually. All right. And for anybody who's curious about it and wants to have a, a gander at it, where can they find it? Lobbying.ie um, is the uh, is the website and that shows the register and it shows uh, it gives all the detail about, uh, about what's going on and, and the rules and laws and so on. Okay, Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. We'll move now to Dublin Airport and news this week that a record 25 million passengers used it in 2015, with the DAA announcing plans for an additional 350 jobs to meet future demand. Joining me in the studio to discuss this is the Irish Times de facto aviation correspondent Barry O'Halloran and Paula Kane, the DEA's Chief Communications Officer. Barry, we might start with you. You covered the story during the week of these uh, record uh, passenger numbers. I think in 2008, just before the recession hit, uh, the DEA recorded 23 million passengers. We're now at 25 million. We've been through the worst recession in living memory. How have they managed to achieve this? Well, the, the fundamental thing is that they they had, I think, and I'm sure Paul will bear me on, there's 22 new routes last year, variety of new airline customers. Um, and alongside that, uh, they had uh, capacity boosts to, I think it was a further 39 existing routes. So they're now serving somewhere around the, the 170 destinations mark. They have their first flights, uh, Ethiopian um, launched its first the first direct flights between Dublin and the and the African continent. Um, well, where the Icelandic low cost operator came in, Bueling came in. There's a they, they've they've actually done really well in in attracting, or they appear to have done really well in in bringing in a, a raft of new business. I think there's there's probably a few things behind this. I think the zero travel, the zero rated travel tax, as it were. We we still technically have travel tax, but we just charge it at zero percent, which effectively means it doesn't exist for now. I think that has played a big part. That's And it's definitely played a big part with the domestic carriers because both Ryanair and Aer Lingus upped capacity and added routes um, at, uh, once that was announced and once that began to take effect in 2014. And that, that sort of momentum continued between tw- from 2014 and into 2015. So I do definitely think that that's that has played a part in it. I think the fact that Dublin Airport's charges have come down a bit has also probably been a factor. Um, alongside that, I think that you've probably had some impact from the tourist side. You had the, the launch of the Wild Atlantic Way, etc. last year. I think that's probably played a role as well. 
you've also had a growing economy and you've had um, increasing interest and increasing investment from abroad. And that obviously must be having some kind of an impact as well. Obviously, people are coming in here to, to look at assets and, and to, to establish businesses. So uh, this is presumably all adding up. Right. And of course, Ireland is being used as a hub as well. Dublin is being used as a hub for transatlantic services and so forth. Aer Lingus, for example, um, brings in passengers for its transatlantic services from regional Britain uh, and some of the continental markets. Isn't that right? Yeah, it is. And in fact, th- that's a good point, because I think um, I think that the, the number of people using Dublin Airport as a hub last year went to around one million. And if you look at the growth that Dublin Airport has had, um, it was 23 point, the, the figures for 2014 were 23.1 million. So they basically added, I think, something like 1.9 million during the year. So you, you could, I suppose, you, you could in a kind of a back of an envelope type calculation say that the, the, the hubbing passengers, if you like, accounted for almost half that growth. But obviously that's not the case because there were, you know, the, 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 the development of Dublin as a hub has, has really come over, over a few years. So, but that's obviously got quite a lot of traction and it's obviously played a big part in it. Yeah. Paul O'Kane, uh, Terminal 2 at Dublin Airport was opened about five years ago now and, and I recall vividly Michael O'Leary describing it as a white elephant, uh, but it seems it's proved anything but. No, when we were building Terminal 2, one of the things that we always said was that it shouldn't be seen through the prism of the downturn. I think that was a mistake that a lot of commentators made. They looked at Terminal 2 and said, we're in a recession, this is a bad time to open. In fact, some people even questioned back in 2007 whether we should cease construction. And at that stage, we always argued we were investing for a 30-year, 40-year time frame. If you look at the growth we've had in the last five years, a huge amount of that growth has come say, in transatlantic traffic, a lot of that growth had come in, in Terminal 2. I mean, between 2010 and 2015, our transatlantic business out of Dublin has grown by 66%. So we added 15 new transatlantic services during those so years. Put that into passenger numbers first. We've gone from transatlantic this year is about 2.5 million. Um, you go back to... Uh, it That's would for be, 2015. For 2015, sorry, for last year's 2.5 million. Um, very significant business. As Barry was saying, we've been expanding our... Uh, Dublin as a hub business over the last three to four years. So this last year, about a million people used Dublin as a transatlantic hub. That is a huge impact um, on our business, both as us winning business from other airports, but also it's it's hugely uh, important for us from a connectivity perspective, because if you're an airline and you're looking at Dublin, you're now looking at a steady stream of transfer passengers. That makes it easier for us to convince an airline to launch a new transatlantic route out of Dublin. It also makes it easier for us to convince an existing operator to add services. If you think back to the, uh, the Aer Lingus, say, route to San Francisco, which was hugely in demand by uh, for foreign direct investment here, the Irish government was very keen on that route being opened. Uh, initially, it was opened, I think, there was a five-day-a-week service that was then ex- ex- expanded to daily very, very quickly. One of the big factors in that route growth and success of that route for Erlingus has been the flow of transfer passengers. So the Irish economy, right across the Irish economy, benefits massively from the fact that we've successfully built Dublin as a hub. We had about a million passengers using Dublin last year, and we've said previously our, our medium-term goal is to grow that business to about 2 million passengers a year. This year, Dublin Airport, and I think a lot of people wouldn't realise this, this year Dublin Airport will be the fifth largest airport in Europe for transatlantic connectivity. So the only airports in Europe that are bigger than us in terms of the transatlantic connectivity are airports like Heathrow, uh, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, um, uh, Paris. So we're, you know, we're really in the top league. And success begets success in that market because you, you reach critical mass and more and more people are interested in in, in operating out of Dublin and, and using yeah, Dublin sure. for Yeah, sure. Now that you have record numbers and you have all these flights, there's no talk of a second runway. Barry was reporting, you might just update us on that, but Barry was also reporting that if this second runway does happen, 
um, the DAA is probably going to have to increase the passenger charges to fund it. Yeah, with this move to the second runway, is what we've said is we're currently looking at the options in relation to delivering a second runway. We've had planning permission um, since 2007, so we're clearly traffic is growing and growing very rapidly. So we're looking at the options that we have and we'll be coming back and updating people on what we're doing in relation to that. As with all infrastructure that we build at the airport, ultimately the user pays, but you know, we're running a business whereby we're a regulated entity at Dublin. So if we build additional infrastructure, if we build a new passenger terminal, if we build a new runway, ultimately the cost of that infrastructure is passed on to passengers via airlines in, in terms of additional charges. So we're regulated by the Commission for Aviation Regulation. And what CAR has said is that when we hit uh, 25 million passengers, as we did last year, they will look at what they call a trigger point for passing on the cost of the runway to, to airlines. They're going to review how that works later in the year. So they're going to have that review sometime possibly in the summer and the autumn. They'll discuss with airlines and ourselves how that may work and they'll come back at that point. So in pounds and pence, what might that mean for passengers? There may be a that has been talked of potentially as, as sixty cents, but it's it, it's really it's all it's all to play for uh, currently. Our charges historically, um, Kieran, as you'd know, having covered uh, the aviation business previously, are actually very very low in a European context and always have been very low. They're hugely good value for, and it's something. The, the passenger doesn't really see the charge they pay the they pay well, the covered aviation for a, a number of years I seem to recall that Michael O'Leary takes an alternative view to that but anyway uh, Barry what's the view from the airlines on a possible increase in passenger charges to pay for a new runway okay well I think you can imagine what it is um at Michael O'Leary at last year when this was for, when people started talking about this when it was becoming obvious that Dublin was getting closer and closer to its trigger point uh, I remember it being raised with Ryanair and they said there's no need for a new runway you could argue that they, they are, uh, they're, all, they're always going to say that. Um, I spoke to Scully Morganson, who's the uh, founder and chief executive of Wow Air, earlier on this week. He's in Dublin for a conference. Um, and he seemed rather dubious about the idea of charges being increased as well. Now, again, he's running an airline and airlines don't necessarily like paying increased charges. But he made the point that he thinks that the, the business model works and works really well as it stands. And that... There is an argument for saying that adding charges now is that you're you're looking at a sort of a short-term gain, whereby if you add the runway and you get the increased traffic, it should effectively pay for itself and there should not be any need to pass on those charges. I'm sure that's something that Dublin Airport uh, would disagree with. But, I mean, ultimately, that is some, that those are the kind of things that the, the regulator will have to sit down and weigh up uh, before making a decision. But I do know from the regulator's last report, which came out at the end of 2014, that the, the trigger was for 59 cent, um, or up to 59 cent. But again, as Paul uh, said earlier, that is something that the, the, the regulator will have to weigh, and we're unlikely to hear anything on this until the end of the year. Paul, the congestion used to be in the terminals, wasn't it, with the passengers and getting through security and all of that nonsense. Uh, it's now uh, on the runway, arguably, with um, air, you know aircraft stacking up, trying to trying to get out, and that causes knock-on delays and so on. It's very frustrating for passengers. Is that why we need a, a second runway? We, in a way, it's, 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 it's a bit like the, you know, you used the example of, of Terminal 2 earlier in the conversation. It's the same with the runway. As an airport operator, we need to take a long-term view. We're not talking about what's happening this year or next year. We're looking at 20, 30 years into the future. We need to manage the airport for the long-term interest of... Um, both the airport itself and also the Irish economy. So we airlines, by their nature, take a short-term view. They're concerned about what's happening next year and the year after, whereas we have to take a longer-term view. 
Um, we're very, very busy at the peak time, which is the first uh, first two hours in the morning. We have two uh, based, what are called base carriers, that's Aer Lingus and Ryanair, both have a large base at Dublin Airport. They need to get their aircraft away um, and into the air as early as possible in the morning to earn as much money for, as possible from those aircraft. We also start in a position where we're an hour behind continental Europe, so business travellers want to get out early. And, they, and, and the dynamic of business travel has changed. If you go back maybe 10, 12 years ago, I think people were happier, say, to fly to Paris and spend the night and do a, an overnight. That's not the case so much anymore. People want to go out and back in a day. So there's a really significant demand to get out early in the morning. So we have huge demands. We need to look at the long-term needs of the airport, the long-term needs of the Irish economy, mm. and we do need to develop a second runway. Uh, but we're also investing We're investing on a day-to-day basis in terms of other infrastructure. So we're currently spending €20 million Euros the minute to add 10 new aircraft parking stands. When you think about Dublin Airport, it's an asset that's 76 years old, so we're always investing both in the passenger facilities and also out on the airfield. If you had a second runway, how many potentially how many passengers could you handle? Well, what then the way that, the way if you think of the airport as a man, let's if you think of it as a manufacturing system in a way, as you say, previously we had terminal we had terminal capacity issues, so we added terminal two to expand that capacity. So effectively, there are three bits you need: you need the terminal processing, you need the boarding gate facilities, and then you need the airfield facilities, which is a combination of the parking stands and the runways. Arguably, with two runways, we could get up to about fifty million passengers a year, but that's not a give. You can't get to that level of development okay. unless you make the necessary other investments in additional terminal sure. facilities and also additional parking stands. So we could need a terminal three. We will definitely need a Terminal 3 at some point or an extension to existing facilities. How far away do you think Terminal 3 will be? It's, it's hard to call. I mean, we, we're currently, we'll be revisiting our master plan. That's something we always look at 20, 30 years out and the various scenarios that may um, come to pass. And what one, one of the things we, we typically do is, whilst you might not be able to predict with, with certainty what will happen, you can look at how you use land. So make sure, one of the key things that we try to do is to make sure that we don't develop in a certain way that's going to cause us a problem down the line if we, if we change our plans. So we're always looking at the long-term um, capability and capacity. But isn't there the a cap on the number of passengers you can process through one and two at the minute? There's current, as part of the planning mission for Terminal Two, yeah, there's, there's a there is an, an ultimate cap, and that was related to the the, the potential delivery is that of the thirty met- million. I think from memory, it's around thirty million. That was related to the potential delivery of the metro, which um, is clearly something which is not within our control in terms of changing the surface uh, access transport to the airport. So that was the the rationale behind that cap. It wasn't anything to do with the airport per se. It was the surface access to the airport. And all things being equal, how long before you get to thirty million? It's we don't we don't make predictions of that nature. You know, we one of the issues that we have is that we have listed bonds, and as we have listed listed bonds, Dublin Airport is such a significant part of the DAA's overall business. We actually don't make public forecasts in terms of past. These numbers. bonds are to fund your these these are these, bo- these are it's effectively loans, debt that we the loans that we had to, to, to fund our expa- to fund our expansion previously. But we're you know we're clearly going to have growth again this year. We fifteen mm. percent growth? growth last year. This year um, it'll be more modest. Last year we had, as Barry said at the outset we had twenty two new routes last year. Thus far this year, we're looking at 11 new services, four new long-haul services, uh, and uh, then some short-haul services. We're also, we have two new additional charter long-haul services this year to uh, Cancun and uh, Montego Bay and Jamaica. So we're, we're seeing growth right across the business. And one of the interesting things that has happened in the airport, you know, we talked earlier about the comparison between now and 2008 and the fact that we're, say, 1.5 million passengers ahead of where we were. But underneath those top-line numbers, the shape of the business has changed quite significantly. Because back in 2008, we had about 800,000 domestic passengers. You may recall then, you know, there were a lot of flights to and from Dublin and Cork. The road network wasn't as it is now. 
a lot of traffic between Dublin and Galway, whereas domestic traffic has almost ceased to exist within the Irish market now. We have flights to Kerry and flights to Donegal, but the domestic numbers are, are relatively modest, whereas you've seen, mm. say, transatlantic and long haul has really grown to increase to take up the slack there. So when do we need to make a call on the second runway? Well, what, I say we're looking at our options currently, but before we'll definitely be coming out and, and, and making our position clear with uh, certainly before the end of this year in terms of what, what we plan to do in relation to the runway. And how much might it cost? Again, given that we're currently looking at the options, um, you know, it's, it's a bit early really to put a figure on it at this point because you have certain options in terms of delivery and the way in which it can be delivered. So around the time of, of the announcement will be more clear in terms of the cost. But obviously, we're looking at delivering it in the most cost-efficient way possible. That's what we want to do. We're looking at the long-term future and the long-term success of Dublin Airport. All right. Now, DA also has responsibility for Cork Airport and for Arena International. Tell us a little bit about Cork Airport. What kind of year did they have last year? Cork Airport had a, a, a year <coughs> whereby in the fourth quarter of last year they would return to growth. They would have had traffic would have been down slightly in a year whole. They did about 2.1 million passengers. That was down about 73,000 passengers on the previous year. But they returned to growth in the fourth quarter of last year and they had 12 route announcements for this year. So this year in Cork, they're looking at a traffic growth, they're expecting traffic growth of about 8% this year in Cork. So a definite upturn in Cork and uh, they've been working hard to attract new business in Cork. Right, and Air Inter has been a big success story as well, hasn't it? Air is a huge, you know, it's, it, we this often... This is a duty-free arm. Yeah, it's an duty, international duty-free business that we have. Hugely successful business. I mean, sometimes we describe it as Ireland's hidden multinational. It operates in 10 countries. It has managed turnover of more than a billion. It's a very significant business. We recently, last year, we won a lar- very large contract in Auckland and to operate the duty-free stores there. We recently won a major contract in Abu Dhabi. We operate in Delhi, in, uh, in Canada, in Beirut. Uh, we operate the duty-free uh, in Cyprus. So we're active in a, in a large number of markets. Long track record, very, very successful business. Right, Barry, uh, a few years ago, Shannon Airport got its independence from the DAA under the then Minister, uh, Leo Varadkar. There have been calls in Cork for something similar to happen for Cork Airport. You're a man from Cork yourself. Um, and the airlines, uh, notably Ryanair, have been calling for this uh, separation uh, for, for some time as well. Have you any sense that uh, something like that might be on the cards? I don't at this point. Um I can sort of see the logic of it in the sense that people have sat back and looked at, at, at what's happened to Shannon and said, well, Shannon are going great guns now since they got independence. But in fact, Shannon's growth rather flatlined last year. Um, so you, you can't necessarily say that that, 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 that um, independence for Shannon has been an all-singing, all-dancing success. It certainly seems to have been reasonably successful. It was also... The, the, the Shannon's breakaway, if you like, was a little bit fortuitous in that there were other developments that the economy was starting to to, 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 to kick back in, or our economic growth rather was starting to kick back in. Plus, you had the zero rate of travel tax. And I mean, I think that what happened in reality with Shannon was that capacity got some capacity got shifted from Cork to Shannon. Um, one of the interesting developments, I think, for Cork, though, and I'm, I was certainly glad to be the guy who broke the story, um, was that Norwegian Air Shuttle is looking at operating a service out of there to Boston. But that is running into some opposition in the United States. Now, both the government and the DAA uh, have made it very clear that they've, they're fully behind this and they've rolled in behind this. But there is a good deal of suspicion amongst the pilots unions, particularly in the US, who are extremely powerful politically, um, that uh, about Norwegian's general business practices. Um, and 
there seems to be a question mark as to now as to whether or not that is going to happen this year. Obviously, um, there are a lot of people in Cork, and I would assume Boston, who are optimistic that it will happen. But um, there definitely seems to be a bit of a question mark over it at the moment. But apart from that, um, certainly, I mean, CityJet has announced a, a, a raft of new services out of there. Um, and for now, it certainly seems that Cork seems to be working well. Whether it necessarily needs independence to continue that growth or not, I don't know. Yeah, they used to say in the Shannon region, Paul, that it was operating under the dead hand of the uh, DAA, uh, and it seems to have done well since uh, gaining its independence. So, was that a fair was that a fair summation? Well, uh, like that old saying about comedy, sometimes timing is everything. Um, I think a lot of there were a lot of myths in relation to the the ownership of uh, uh, Shannon Airport and the way in which it operated under DAA. Um, Shannon. But before Shannon had traffic falls under DAA, they also had record tra- traffic growth under DAA. So I suppose it's you pick the statistics you want to, sh- to, to show your point. Um, in terms of ownership, ultimately, uh, DAA, whilst we're not funded by the state, we're owned by the state. So any in terms of Cork Airport or Shannon, it's ultimately a decision for our shareholder, the government, in terms of ownership. Um, they made the decision in relation to Shannon. In relation to Cork, the current position is that the, the shareholder said that Cork Airport will stay with the DAA until I think it may be five, seven years hence, something of that of that nature. They've made a decision in relation to that. Cork is returned to growth in the last quarter. They'll have a good year this year. Um, but I think if you look historically, the notion, uh, it always surprised me to an extent that the notion that someone would say that the owner of any company would set out with the notion that they wouldn't want that company to perform well and to grow, um, which seemed to be certainly the notion in the Midwest. I thought I always thought it was a bizarre notion that any owner would have of a business would want a business not to succeed. So certainly when Shannon was under our ownership, it did well in a certain period. It did less well in another period when there was an economic downturn. Okay. And it sounds like it's going to be another busy year at Dublin Airport. Should people be worried if they're planning trips abroad that perhaps they're going to encounter some of the delays um, that of old, you know, that Dublin Airport was famed for almost? No, if you... If you think back to where we were, if you go back five, six, seven, eight years ago, we had a scenario whereby we had about 20 million, up to 23 and a half million passengers going through one terminal. And the big issue that we faced back then in terms of the product that we delivered to our customers was that we were continuing to squeeze ever increasing back then numbers through one passenger terminal. The product was completely changed for in both terminals from the opening of terminal, of terminal 2. And one of the pleasant things we had this year, so yes, we had 15% growth. We added 3.3 million passengers. We track our customer service scores monthly in terms of what people's view of the, the, the product is, in terms of queue times, the cleanliness of the terminals, the friendliness of staff. And our customer service scores actually increased this year, despite the fact that we added 3.3 million passengers. Also, as we announced earlier in the week, we're midway through recruiting about 350 extra staff to cope with this additional demand. And a lot of those new employees are in areas such as... Uh, uh, customer service, they're in uh, security. Sec- security to speed up those queues. So last year, you know, we would have had, I think, the um, um, the average security queue last year, despite adding 3.3 million passengers, was about seven and a half minutes. But what about the passport control? Because it's been a real bugbear for a lot of people. They arrive home maybe from a long flight and they find a huge queue to get through passport control. Passport control at the airport is operated by, it's a combination of Inish, which is a new service, and GNIB, which is the Guard of National Immigration Bureau. So they operate the past the immigration service at the airport. So we're consistently working with them to try and uh, help them uh, improve their service. It's not, a, it's not a particular product that we operate per se. The security screening is completely within DAA's remit. As I say, the immigration controls um, are operated by Inish and GNIB. They have been investing. They've been recruiting new staff for Inish. They've also uh, introduced some uh, electronic readers, and we're working with them to do everything that we can from our side of the house to help them 
um, improve their, their customer yeah. service. Barry, when IAG took over Aer Lingus earlier this year, there was a lot of talk about uh, Dublin becoming possibly the third runway at Heathrow that they can't seem to get past the British government. Uh, is there any sense that 2016 uh, might be the beginning of this? Well, th- there is in the sense that, that I- IAG has rode in between at the, um, with a, a new aircraft, a uh, new long-haul aircraft for, for Aer Lingus, and they, have, um, they made a point, I think, towards the end of last year after the deal was done, of um, announcing new services to LA and Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so certainly, they, 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 thus far, they, they've been proved to be as good as their word. I noticed that um, there are kind of there have been reports popping up from time to time in in the last couple of months in the British press in relation to um, uh, Willie Wal- IAG chief executive Willie Walsh's ongoing criticism of the, the the situation that he'd thrown the lack of a political will to do anything and those reports seem to be suggesting that that um, he is very much looking to Dublin um, to push growth not just for uh, Aer Lingus the new acquisition but also possibly. British Airways, so that is something that I think um, we could watch with a bit of interest. But so far, they're certainly um, they certainly appear to be doing what they said they would do. But of course, you would expect them to to take some early action on that front as well to reassure everybody once the deal was done, because we all know what sort of questions were being thrown around this time last year when it was clear that IAG was moving on Aer Lingus. Paul, well, you know, we we've been building, as I said earlier, we've been building a hub business for several years, kind of long before IAG emerged as a potential suitor and eventually a uh, a suitor for Aer Lingus. So we're focusing on building a hub for all of our customers. Um, we're drawing passengers currently from right across Europe and actually, oddly, from some places you wouldn't imagine. Uh, it's quite often talked, when people look at our hub numbers, they quite often think those passengers are just coming from provincial UK. And yes, we are drawing passengers from there. But we're, all, we're also drawing passengers from places that you wouldn't expect. We're drawing passengers from cities that have their own direct connections already, cities like Paris, like Amsterdam, because people are, go- people are buying travel in a different way now. They're on Skyscanner, they're on Kayak or one of these sites. They pick the two cities and quite often they're going for the cheapest option and quite often um, reading through Dublin is a very good uh, cost option. Also, one of the real benefits that we have in Dublin, and I think it's the classic case of if people get to try the product, they want to come back because we have, we're the only major airport in Europe that has US pre-clearance. So if you're travelling through Dublin and you're using US pre-clearance, you clear all customs and immigration in Dublin, which means when you arrive in the United States, you know, the only queue you have effectively when you arrive in the States... You're a domestic passenger. You're a domestic passenger. And you just and pick up your bag and yeah, and that, that's a huge... Um, that, that's a huge uh, kind of plus card for us. The other thing I think that people sometimes don't realise is that we punch massively above our weight in terms of our connectivity with North America. I mean, there are many cities in Europe that are much, much bigger than Dublin that don't have a single daily flight to the United States, whereas we have, you know, six, we'll have, I think we've got uh, um, 16, uh, 16 d- direct destinations this year, and many of those served by a choice of airlines. Okay, and now we do have a general election uh, hoving into view, and obviously there are always political considerations to everything the DAA does. So uh, are there any concerns within the DAA that a new government might, for example, put the brakes on uh, on a second runway or might delay it in a way that uh, could be unhelpful to the DAA? Well, one, of, one of the things that was spoken about earlier, and I actually meant to, you, you reminded me, I meant to slightly pick up on this point that we're, Barry was saying, you know, we, we're, better, we're benefiting from the economy. I, I would argue that the reverse is partly the case, that the economy is benefiting from us. It's not, we're not simply a receiver. The fact that we're growing traffic is driving the economy and driving tourism. Um, you know, we're a huge part of the Irish economy. We, the Dublin, we, we had an economic impact study produced last year. Dublin Airport is responsible for 97,400 jobs in the Irish economy. 6.9 billion in economic revenue mm. is generated by Dublin Airport. 
you know, we think about the Irish economy, we focus on FDI, we focus on trade, we're a huge open economy. It's, you know, if Dublin Airport benefits, the Irish economy benefits, we're probably the most, the single biggest economic unit in, in yeah, the yeah, state, sure. you know. And, you know, before Christmas, uh, Michael O'Leary was speaking at a dinner, uh, I think it was the Institute of Directors, and he said that the Irish economy would be grand over the next uh, number of years once we keep Sinn Féin out of government. And there were laughs across the uh, across the floor. I mean, does DAA have a, a preference as to who would like to see in government? No, not at all. What do you think having Sinn Féin in government might do for aviation policy? No, who knows? But we don't have. We're we're apolitical. We've you know we're owned by the state, and we're completely and utterly apolitical. Okay, Barry. Any sense of uh, where Sinn Fein might stand on aviation policy, or any of the other parties for that matter? What what might happen over the next five years when we get a new government? I, I, I my well, my own personal theory with uh, about Sinn Fein at this stage is is that more and more they 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 start to look like all the other parties, and I I don't think I think if they were to come in, that they probably wouldn't want to rock the boat. Um, that much, and certainly around something like Dublin Airport, given the fact that... Or you know, the aircraft. Even. Or even the aircraft. But um, I do think that it's inevitable that when it comes to the runway that you are going to meet some form of political political cowardice. It's inevitable. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fact of political life in this country that the politicians don't like making decisions. And I know that there are probably... There are bound to be concerns in, amongst suburban dwellers in North Dublin around... The, the runway and the likely impact that it is going to have on them. And by the way, I think those probably are those probably are valid concerns, and that is all, also something that is going to have to be thrashed out. But um, the the problem is that when politicians will always look at the number of votes in a, in a given situation, and they may not necessarily look at the bigger picture or the uh, the, the the bigger benefit that something like this could potentially deliver to the country as a whole. So, in one sense. I don't feel that it makes much difference who's in power. I think that um, they're all going to display the same lack of vertebrae. Okay, Barry Halloran, Paula Kane, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Paula Kane, Barry Halloran, and Mark Paul. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 